morning, church. At the beginning of the 2016 NBA Finals, I had faith in our Ohio team, the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, we forget that Cleveland is actually in Ohio, and when it comes to NBA, we are allowed to root for Cleveland. Uh, I would argue we should root for Cleveland, being the only NBA team in our state, uh, but I feel like I am the only one. Uh, but anyways, I was not only rooting, but believing that the Cavs were going to pull it out. Yeah, they were going up against the Warriors, the super team who took all the player, the stars at discount prices just so they could win. But I thought, we got it. And when we ended up being down three games to one, I started to have some doubts. My confidence, my faith, my belief in the team was mixed with a little bit of doubt. Maybe I had been wrong in thinking they were going to win. How could they possibly win three straight to come back and win the series? It had never been done before. Well, turns out my faith was well-founded and my doubt was not well-founded because they did it. LeBron led them roaring back, winning three in a row to win the championship. It was a great day for me, at least. Apparently not the rest of Cincinnati. Now, today's story in the book of Mark is a story about belief in Jesus when that belief is challenged. Now, I just use the terms belief, faith, trust, all talking about a basketball team in normal ways that we use all the time. And, and sometimes when we stop and talk about religion, we use the same words, but we we don't realize that they mean the same thing. In this case, really, uh, faith in the team is similar to faith in Jesus. Will he pull it out for us or not? So today, we're going to be talking about that belief in Jesus amidst doubts. When that belief is challenged, when we uh, are unsure of uh, him, him coming through for us. I think it will serve as an encouragement to us today to draw near to him. The main point of today's passage is this. Turn to Jesus in your doubts, because even a weak faith in him is a saving faith. Turn to Jesus in your doubts, because even a weak faith in him is a saving faith. Let's read the passage together. It's in Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. If you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles, uh, like I am, it's in page 896. When they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He, was, he has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. He replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. So they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, 
It immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus asked the father. From childhood, he said. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Then it came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse, so that many said, He's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him, and he stood up. After he had done, gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. This is God's holy and inspired word. Thanks be to God. As we consider this passage this morning, we'll organize it into characters. We'll think about the crowds, and we'll think about the disciples and the Father together, and then we'll think about Jesus. So the three points of the sermon today are, one, amazed, but unbelieving. Number two, doubting, but coming to Jesus. And then number three, disbelieved, but trustworthy. So number one, amazed, but unbelieving. The crowd in Mark actually kind of serves as its own character. You can track the story arc of the crowd as you read the book of Mark. In this story, they are amazed at him. He's come down the mountain from the Mount of Transfiguration, and they are amazed. But as of yet, they are not believing in Jesus. And throughout the book, they've come to Jesus for healing, for food, for teaching, but they have not believed. And in fact, Jesus taught them the parable of the soils, the parable of the sower who goes out to sow, and there's different reactions to the seed falling on different kinds of ground. Jesus is expecting this varied response from the crowd. The story of the crowd in the book of Mark doesn't have a particularly good ending. There's moments where, kind of like this, where the father is, becomes an individual within the crowd, and he comes to Jesus, and there's something good that happens. But overall, the story of the crowd in Mark ends with them chanting, crucify him. So the story of the crowd here, we see them amazed, but they are still not believing. You see Jesus respond to their unbelief in verse 19. He says, he replied to them, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Jesus is using this uh, prophetic language that's common in the Old Testament to talk about this generation of Israel this generation around him who are resisting 
him. They are not believing him. him. They are rejecting the evidence of salvation that he has provided for them, the evidence of who he is that he's provided for them. They're rejecting it. And the reasons for believing in Jesus as the Messiah at this point in Mark that the crowd has been witness to are actually many. We can review them. It will be a good kind of review for the book of Mark, getting us back into the swing of things. This is what's already been established, that the crowds should have been able to see, already saw, already knows. We know that Jesus has been heralded as the Messiah by John the Baptist. We know that Jesus taught as one with authority, not like the scribes. We know that Jesus uh, cast out unclean spirits, proving his authority even over Satan. We've seen Jesus healing all kinds of sick, the blind, the deaf, the paralyzed, the feverish, the leprous. Jesus has shown his authority to forgive sins. Jesus has shown his authority over the wind and the waves. Jesus has shown his authority over nature to miraculously feed the 5,000 and then the 4,000. Jesus has shown his authority, his power to walk on the water. All of these drive home the point, this man must be from God. His power to renew life must come from the one who creates life. Who is this man? He must be from God. The question is, who does he say he is? Will the crowds believe Jesus at his word of who he says he is? Well, that's really the question of do they believe in Jesus? That's still the question today, isn't it? Do we believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? That phrase is is very common. You're used to hearing the question, do you believe in Jesus? You must believe in Jesus. Well, what does that actually mean? What's it mean to believe in Jesus? It's more than just saying there was a historical Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. Everybody pretty much believes that. That's not the uh, question. The question is really kind of two questions, two questions of really defining when a Christian asks you, hey, do you believe in Jesus? This is kind of what we're getting at. We're getting at one, did Jesus rise from the dead? All of the miracles that I just listed that Jesus has performed through the book of Mark. All of those are uh, not hard to believe if you start with the belief that Jesus died and rose from the dead, right? They kind of follow. It's not too difficult to say, okay, Jesus could heal somebody if Jesus actually resurrected from the dead himself. And if you don't believe in the resurrection, then there's really no reason to believe that he did all those miracles. There's no reason to, to take Uh, any of these healings as real. Because if the Bible is wrong about him raising from the dead, then it must be wrong about these other things too. So the question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Really points to this. The resurrection is the linchpin for believing in Jesus. It's the linchpin. It's the most important thing. The second thing is, was Jesus the son of God as he claimed? Jesus claimed to be the son of God. To be the one with to be one with his father. That is to say, he is both fully God and fully man. 
all the miracles and teaching and resurrection evidence leads you to listen to him, to listen as he makes these claims saying, I am the son of God. I pray to my father. My father and I are one. So belief in Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, means you're going to believe he is who he says he is. You're going to believe he is the son of God. So when Christians speak of believing in Jesus or not, we're talking about those two categories, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and Jesus, the son of God. So what about you? Do you believe in Jesus? Where do you stand in that question? What do you think of Jesus? And as I ask that, I would encourage you to be radically honest with yourself. It is far more useful, far better for you to be honest with yourself and with others about whether or not you believe in Jesus than to just sort of float along in an assumed Christianity. The, the crowds might have uh, uh, been interested and been amazed in Jesus, but Jesus pushes the question to them. Who am I? Who do you think that I am? Christians believe in Jesus. So if you do not believe in Jesus in the way that I've described, let me encourage you with three things. Number one, you do have to make a call. Uh, amazement is not belief. The crowds hanging around Jesus and listening to his teaching is not belief. The crowds going to the disciples uh, is not belief. And so the equivalent now, right? Coming to church is not the same as belief in Jesus. Hanging around with Christians is not the same as belief in Jesus. Being uh, in a Christian family is not the same as believing in Jesus. You do have to make a call to, to say you don't know yet or to say anything other than you do believe in him is to make a choice against him. No decision is a decision against. So encouragement to you is you do have to make a call on this question of who is Jesus? Do you believe in him? Second encouragement to you, if, if you don't believe, is Jesus doesn't require you to have it all together. This is good news, friends. Jesus is not asking you to clean yourself up and then come to him. He's not asking you to figure out at a PhD level all the answers to your doubts or to your questions before you believe in him. He's asking you to believe, to come, to submit to him. My third encouragement to you would be Jesus is patient with you. Jesus is patient with the crowd throughout Mark. Even though Jesus knows the end of the, the crowd's story, he knows that there will come a time when they will no longer be amazed, they will no longer be coming for feeding, no longer coming for healing. Instead, they will be clamoring for his death. And yet here he is, patiently bearing with them, teaching them, healing them, bearing with them again and again. And get this, he continued to save people from that crowd after his death and resurrection. The, in Acts, there were 6,000 church members in Jerusalem right at the beginning. That's months after Jesus's death and resurrection and ascension. So how many of that 6,000 were part of the crowds who were chanting crucify him? What an amazing patience that Jesus has to bear with the crowd bit by bit 
as they don't believe him yet. But Jesus is patient with them. So, friend, Jesus is patient with you. Turn to him. It's not too late. It's not too late to believe. Now, there will come a time when it is too late. So there's an urgency to the question. There will come a time when it is too late for you to believe, but that time is not yet. So come to him. Come to him now. This could be your day. Now, the crowds had never yet believed in Jesus in the story here. But the disciples had believed in Jesus. They already have been following him, already been listening to him. But they, their belief in Jesus is, is incomplete. It's, it's imperfect. There's a story in chapter 8 where Jesus heals a blind man. And at first he's healed and he looks out and he sees people walking around and they look like trees walking, like an early ent kind of thing, you know. And the, then Jesus touches him again and then he's healed the rest of the way and he can see clearly, right? And so that's a, a word picture, a, a living image of the way the disciples believed at this point in the story. They believe, they see Jesus, they have spiritual sight, but they don't see him quite clearly yet. And so we have things that we can learn from the disciples uh, as kind of a negative example. So we'll move to point two, doubting but coming to Jesus. So through these chapters in Mark, you have different things that note that this is really about the disciples, their growth in their, their belief in Jesus. Because you have Peter confessing that Jesus is the Messiah, and then he tries to rebuke Jesus for saying that he's going to suffer and die. So it's like, good, bad. Jesus, a second time, shares that he's going to be killed, and the disciples start arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You have Jesus predicting his death a third time, and then James and John ask to sit at his right hand in, right and left hand in glory. All these are examples of them seeing but not seeing. They can accept Jesus as wearing the crown, but they are not accepting Jesus as wearing the crown of thorns. And yet, there's a germ of faith there. They do believe. Peter is affirmed in his confession of Jesus as the Christ. Peter and James and John really did just see Jesus in glory at the transfiguration. And most crucially, these are the 11 apostles who are going to be the founders of the church. This belief is real. It's going gonna, it's gonna to give birth to full-grown uh, maturity. But in this story, they actually stand in contrast to the, the father as uh, not responding correctly when their, their faith is challenged. Because what happens in the story? So the nine disciples are down with the people from the mountain while Peter and James and John and Jesus are up the mountain doing the transfiguration. And they are doing the work that they were commissioned to do. They'd already been commissioned to go out and heal the sick, cast out the demons, and proclaim the good news of Jesus. They've been doing that. And they come up against this demon and this boy, and they try to cast him out, and it doesn't work. And they don't know what to do. We don't, we don't, we don't know. We're not told what they do. Uh, but apparently an argument forms. The scribes are there. The crowds are there. The father and the son are there. The nine disciples are there. And a big argument forms. And this is a, a challenging situation for them. But we 
do kind of get a, 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 an image of what they don't try to do. We don't know what they try to do, but we get an image of what they don't try to do at the end of our story. If you look forward at verses 28 and 29, they asked, so after they had gone into the house, his disciples asked Jesus privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he told them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. So their mistake was in some kind of prayerlessness. You know, I'm reading this passage, and I don't think this is teaching us about some unique, only found in this passage in the Bible, class of demons. I don't think this is essentially about how to go about exorcism. I think this passage as a whole is about, I believe, help my unbelief. It's about what we do when our belief and our faith is challenged. I think it's a unified passage, and it's teaching the disciples something about that leaning on God kind of prayer, even when the belief is, is starting to have doubts come in. So Christians, you know, those of you who do believe in Jesus, I trust, I, 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 I believe that there are probably times when your belief in Jesus is challenged. Sometimes that challenge comes from outside of you, an experience or an argument that shakes your faith. Sometimes that is something that just comes from within you, some uh, thought or feeling that irks that belief, and it can lead you to doubt God, to doubt the Bible, to doubt Jesus. The disciples in that moment don't go to God in prayer. They don't go to Jesus with their doubts. So let me give you four ways to not respond to your doubt, four ways to go not towards Jesus in your doubt. So four things not to do. Number one, celebrate your doubt. This is a, a particular trap in our culture. We so value authenticity. I don't know if you've noticed this. Sometimes it's like somebody will do a bad thing, but then talk about their bad thing authentically. And we're like, wow, what a good guy. Like, well, okay, but it's still not a good thing, right? Like, we value authenticity, but doubt in of itself is not a virtue. It's not a good thing. The Bible encourages us to strengthen our faith, to deepen our trust, to hold fast to Jesus. It's not championing doubt for doubt's sake. So we do need to be cautious against celebrating doubt but on the other hand, I don't want you to deny your doubt like that solves the problem. Address your doubt. Speak honestly about your doubt so that you can move to trusting more, move to strengthening your faith. So uh, don't celebrate your doubt, but, but look at it. So number two of ways to go away from Jesus in your doubt would be this. Look for people who understand you because they, they agree with your unbelief. Look for people who understand you because they agree with your unbelief. So this is so tempting, guys. There is something really comfortable about finding somebody who hears your doubt and says, oh, yeah, you're right. That does make it not true. And you know what else? This thing and this thing and this thing, all of those are reasons not to believe. There's something comforting about finding somebody who has that resonance with you, but it is so dangerous. That person is taking your doubt and matching it with full-fledged unbelief and walking you step by step further away from Jesus instead of toward 
Jesus. That person is a false friend. So be careful of that. Number three, in ways to go away from Jesus, universalize your experience. It's easy easy for us to let our experience uh, dominate our vision of truth. Maybe you've had a bad experience with an evangelical church, and so you want to project that experience onto the entire category, right? There's, there's a, there's a, a, we need to be careful there. There's a fallacy in that in saying, hey, it's true of one, therefore it's true of the whole category. There's a danger in that in pulling you away from Jesus in your doubts by throwing out everything from one or, or, or some experiences. So universalize your experience. And number four, assume you've been there and done that with the Bible. This is so tempting, and it's so deadly for a doubting believer to adopt this attitude that says, I tried the Bible, it didn't help. I know the Bible, that's what I've been taught my entire life. It's time to go to something else for a real solution. That attitude in your heart will run you right away from Jesus, with your doubts, right towards unbelief. Now, thankfully, we can be done with negative example and move to the positive example that's in our story and see the father as a doubter turning toward Jesus. So what did the father do? His son has this terrible affliction. He can't speak. He has these episodes where, where he loses control of his body, his body becomes rigid, he's foaming at the mouth. It's an awful thing. And even, even what happens is, is it seems this demon is trying to kill the boy by making him have these episodes next to water, so he falls in and drowns, or next to fire, so he falls in and, and burns himself. This is the, 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 the life of this father or this boy since the boy was little and the father is desperate so what does he do in his distress he brings the boy to jesus and he finds the disciples there as jesus's representatives and he brings them to them and to 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 have them exercise this demon and it doesn't work it doesn't work at first. They're, he's, he's so worried. And so as the crowd says, Jesus is over there, he's coming in. And, and this man apparently is with that main herd of the crowd, front of the, the pack, to run to greet Jesus. And he's the first one to speak when Jesus says, what's the argument about? And he says to Jesus <clears throat> in 22, he says, uh, how long has this been happening? He says, from childhood. And many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You feel his plight, but you also hear that word, don't you? You hear that word, if. If you can do anything. So the question is, does he believe or not? Does he believe that Jesus can or is he not believe that Jesus can. Jesus picks up on this. He picks up on this question, if you can. Jesus said to him, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes. And then the man cries out. Immediately, the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. He gives this honest plea to Jesus. 
honestly admitting this is where I'm at in my heart. I believe and I don't believe at the same time. I believe, but I'm plagued with doubts. I believe, help my unbelief. And what does Jesus do with that earnest cry for faith? That earnest cry for help. He helps. He gives faith away. Only God can. He heals the boy. The question is, why was the father's faith effective? His faith was effective. It was effective because it was in the right object. He's placing his faith in the right person. His faith was weak. His faith itself was, was, was weak. It was mixed with unbelief. It was full of doubt. It was struggling. But here he is at Jesus' feet asking Jesus to heal the boy. His faith is effective not because of how strong it is, but because he's choosing to trust in the right person. This is such an incrucial, a crucial, encouraging truth about faith itself. Imagine two people sitting on an airplane. One is deathly afraid, certain that that plane is going to crash, but sitting there hoping it won't. <laughs> and the other person is not scared at all, bored, regular, ho-hum, normal day, right? You've got these two people sitting next to an airplane. One's faith is strong in the airplane. The other's faith is very weak in the airplane. But at the end of the day, he got in. <laughs> He's sitting there. They're sitting there side by side. They're both in the plane. So what's going to be determinative of if they make it? Not the strength of their faith, but the, the goodness of the, the thing they're putting their faith in. It's up to the airplane if they will be saved. They're both in the airplane. It's up to the airplane, the object of faith. It's like that with Jesus. Let me encourage you, doubting Christian. Your faith may be weak, but your Savior is strong. In your weakness, you've come to the right place. You've come to the right Savior, to the right Jesus. It is he who saves. It is not the strength of your faith that saves. You're not saved because your faith is strong. You're saved because your faith is in Jesus. Let this be a great encouragement to you. You want to be a Christian who goes to Jesus with your doubts, like this man who comes to his feet and says, I believe, help my unbelief. But how do we do that? How do we do that in a way that actually is real. I mean, Jesus is not physically here with us right now. We can't run to him and say, I believe, help my unbelief. How do we run to him and say, I believe, help my unbelief? Let me give you four ideas, four ways to run to Jesus with your doubts. First of all, fight your doubt. Fight your doubt. Look at the epistles. This is, if you start asking the question, faith, doubt, how does it fit in the epistles, in the, the letters in the New Testament? How does this fit? Let me give you three examples of how it fits, <laughs> how it comes up. Look for the word stand firm. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by what we said or what we wrote. Hey, you've got these truths. Stand firm in them. Hold them close. Or look at the conclusion. There's two different conclusion ones. So the conclusion of 1 Peter 5, verse 12. 
This conclusion of the letter, kind of purpose statement for the letter. Through Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm. Or the conclusion of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. So, brothers and sisters, the first way to run to Jesus in your doubts is to fight your doubts. Stand firm in the truth of the gospel. Let that put steel in your spine to continue to hold fast to Christ. Number two, choose counselors with strong faith. A good friend will listen to you well. She will understand what you are saying and where you are coming from. She will be able to articulate back to you your doubts, even in a way that's saying, you know, that's it. That's what I've been trying to say. That is what I'm, what I'm struggling with. But then she will help lead you to Jesus. She will take you to scripture and show you ways in which the Bible is better than your doubts, in which Jesus is indeed true and good and righteous. And that brings us to number three. Number three, identify specific doubts. Match them with specific scriptural truths. Identify specific doubts and match them with specific truths. So what would that be? It's like this. It's like, is your doubt that God couldn't really love you? Well, memorize Romans 8.32. Let the logic of this verse just sink into your soul. He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Let the logic of that sink into your soul. Fight that doubt with that truth. Or maybe is this your doubt? Is your doubt that God's rules are harsh and unloving? How could he be a good God and he makes these rules for us? He's mean. Well, memorize Psalm 16, 11. You reveal the paths of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. And you let that truth sink into your heart. You understand that God's way is best. Or last example, maybe your doubt is that God couldn't be loving and let bad things happen. The bad stuff that has happened bothers you, and you think, how could God be powerful and good, and this stuff is happening in the world? Well, look to Romans 5.8. But God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Fight your doubts Find them, find them where they are specifically, identify them specifically, and then let Scripture speak specifically to those doubts. And then fourth, force feed the Bible. Uh, lots of times in the Christian life, reading the Bible is the, the, the thing that you have an appetite for. You're hungry for it. You want more Scripture. But there are seasons, maybe seasons of doubt, where you do not have that appetite. Something's wrong in your heart where you know it ought to be a a good thing, but it doesn't feel like a good thing. You don't feel hungry for it. Well, it's not time to stop taking it in then. It's not time to stop reading. It's not time to stop eating of God's good word. 
So run to Jesus in the pages of Scripture, even when the doubts plague you. He is here in his word. He's here. Run to him here. Don't run away from him, but run to him. Now, let's consider Jesus's actions a bit more in this story. This will bring us to our third point. Disbelieved, but trustworthy. So we need to consider these three truths about Jesus. Disbelieved, but trustworthy. The characters in the story don't believe Jesus as they should. Does that mean Jesus is not trustworthy? Does the disbelief around you discourage you? Does it tempt you to doubt him? If that person doesn't trust Jesus, maybe I shouldn't trust Jesus. This can be especially discouraging uh, for for Christians, for you, when there's people who uh, have made a good impact in you spiritually who somehow suddenly stop trusting in Jesus. It can be really shaking to you. If he apparently used to trust Jesus, he used to lead people to trust Jesus, and now he's fallen away. Is something wrong with Jesus? No, nothing is wrong with Jesus. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. Though his disciples turn away in their doubt, he is still mighty to save and he's holding them fast. Though the crowd refuse to believe, Jesus remains the truth. Though some who call themselves Christians prove to be haters of Jesus, Jesus remains the love. Jesus is worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your faith. Even when others are faithless to him, he is faithful. When you're united to Jesus by faith, you are safe in him. Second truth about Jesus, he's willing and able. Look at verse 23, <laughs> the first half. So he, he first he asks, if you can, right? But then he says, everything is possible for the one who believes. Everything is possible for the one who believes. Everything is possible for the one who believes. What falls into that category of everything? What's hard for you to believe that falls into that category of everything? Everything is possible for the one who believes. Is it possible for him to save even you? To strengthen your faith amidst your doubts? Is he willing and able to save your loved one? Is he willing and able to, 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 to preserve his true word in the Bible? Is he willing and able to return in glory? Is he willing and able to know what is the best for us? Is he willing and able to comfort you in your sorrow? All things are possible in Jesus. He's willing and he's able. And then lastly, Jesus is both powerful and gentle. You know, this passage kind of repeats three different times the power that the demon has over the boy. It's seen in these terrible physical manifestations. But all of that power that's in that demon, nobody else has any ability to affect that demon. The scribes can't, the crowds can't, the disciples can't, but Jesus can't. 
Jesus is powerful over that demon. With the power of God himself, Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit, demanding, commanding that it come out of the boy. You mute and deaf spirit, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. And what does it do? It came out, shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. Jesus has that power with just his word that no one else could ever do. He has the power over the most powerful enemy, Satan himself. Jesus has power over your enemies too. He is the powerful one who can take care of you. And yet with that great and terrible power, he turns to the boy who's laying on the ground looking like a corpse. And he reaches out and takes the boy by the hand. He says, stand up. And he helps the boy to his feet. It's that gentleness mixed with that power that Jesus has for you. He has that power, and he's reaching out his hand to you to take you by the hand and lift you up, set you on your feet, and say, go forward and believe in me. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on this passage.